This week in the news has been really a, a sad week to me. It, it's been hard to see what's been happening between Israel and Hamas and in the, the West Bank there, or actually in Gaza, and um, some of the battles that are going on there. And it, it's, it's hard to see some of the, the national and worldwide reaction to what is going on there. And this week we saw a, a truce brokered or a ceasefire brokered, and it was to be a three-day ceasefire, right? Do you remember how long it lasted? About an hour and a half. About an hour and a half before um, a Hamas fighter came up out of a tunnel, one exploded an explosive vest, and they killed a number of Israeli soldiers and or several Israeli soldiers. Um, there was talk that maybe one was captured. He's, he's now been reported as dead. And it took about an hour and a half before the commitment to the ceasefire ended. And you think of why. And, and, and the, the, the situation there is so much more complex than, than people see on the service after having been there and even seeing some of the things our, our Israeli tour guide posted this week. It's just hard. And, and it's complicated. But... One of the reasons the ceasefire fell apart is because there was no commitment to it, especially on Hamas's side. Israel was committed to it, but Hamas, their desire isn't to have the, the fighting stop. And so we saw an hour and a half in, and we've seen that ceasefire after ceasefire after ceasefire. And it's interesting to watch that. And, and as you watch news, I encourage you to, to think of, okay, how does this apply to me? And we, we, can, we can come down so hard on different people but as I was watching that commitment, and as, as I was thinking through Joshua, and then, then Judges, the next book that we're not going to study um, as, as a book, but there was a problem with commitment. And when I think of the, the Christian walk, I think of why do I sin? Why do I rebel against God? And, and usually it's a problem of commitment, isn't it? I've committed, I'm going to follow God, and I'm going to serve God. But then I walk away. I sin and I fall, and every one of us do. And we're just like the children of Israel throughout the book of Judges and, and some, some of what's alluded to in Joshua. And we struggle with that commitment. And at its heart, if we're to commit to something, if we're to successfully serve God and follow God, there has to be a commitment that's, that's founded on something solid. The ceasefire between Hamas and Israel was not founded for Hamas on anything they desired or any, any substance. But if we're to stay committed to God, it's got to be founded on some sort of substance. And we come to Joshua 24, the end of the book. And this is Joshua's last sermon to his people. Last week we saw his last sermon to the leaders. This week his last sermon to, to his people. And his desire is for them to be committed to God to be wholly, solely committed to God and have nothing sway them from that. And so as we look through Joshua 24, I want to look at what he says to get his people to commit. What God brings to the picture to bring a foundation for that commitment. And so we'll study through it, but with an eye to how can we be committed to God? How can my family be committed to God? And the key verse that you see on on the canvas over here is, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I, I just want to address the word house right from the start. This doesn't mean that only if you have kids at home that, that today applies to you. This message is for every one of us. The, the message of Joshua 24. The word for house there actually is household, which is extended family. But the idea is 
we're to be sold out and serve God. And so if you have kids at home and you have a family at home, absolutely this applies to you. And I, and I pray that as we talk about how to be a God-choosing family, it gives you some tools to do that. Some of you are empty nesters. Your kids have left home. Husbands, let me just tell you, you still have a family. And it starts with your wife and leading your wife. And you still have a household and an influence on all those kids that have gone out and have their own families now. So these verses apply to you. Some of you don't have families yet. And and you're, you're praying for God to give that to you someday. This is the time to think through what it means to be a godly man, a godly woman, and how to be committed to God. How to say, as for me and my house, and my household right now may be just me, but we will serve the Lord. And this is the time to work on that. And so this is a passage for all of us, a challenge for all of us. How will we stick with a commitment to God and, and ground it, base it on something solid? Turn with me to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. And we'll be looking through this chapter. And just as you turn there, it's interesting, this chapter is, is, is really, there's a lot of comparisons made to a covenant that they would have made around that time. A Hittite covenant of the same era between maybe an overlord and a vassal, someone that um, is over an area and his servants. And so we're going to see a number of elements of a covenant. This is an official ceremony between God as the Lord, as the overlord, and his people, his servants, which is us. And so we're going to see elements of that as we study, and I'll bring those out a little bit, but it's really interesting because the takeaway of that is this is a formal commitment ceremony. This is not something to be taken lightly. This is not something that Joshua just woke up one morning and said, I think I'll talk to the people about commitment. This was an organized treaty of sorts, covenant between God and his people. So let's start by looking at verses 1 and 2. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, and the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Right from the start, you see the location. And the location should ring a bell. We've studied through Joshua now. What else happened at Shechem? Anyone remember? We separated you guys into the bad and the good. Sorry, guys. It's where Mount Ebal and uh, Mount Gerizim were, and and Shechem is down in the valley between. And so this was an area in chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, where a commitment ceremony had already taken place. But this had historical significance because this is one of the first places that Abraham came into the land, where God promised him the land, and he built an altar there. A little bit later, Jacob met God there and built an altar there. And just two chapters after that, Jacob collected all of the idols from his household and buried them under a terebinth tree there. That's going to come up in this chapter, the similarities to that. And so there's a background there that, that this was a place where quite possibly the, the tabernacle was now and the ark was. This was a place to meet God. And we see that Joshua summoned everyone, the leaders, all of Israel. Um, and we know that from verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, but at the end, end of verse 1 it says, and they presented themselves before God. It's actually a significant phrase because it means they came ready to covenant with God. 
They came ready to hear what God had to say, and they probably came to the ark, and this is a formal presentation to hear what God had to say to them. And then verse 2, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And right from the start, we see the author of the commitment, the author of the covenant, the foundation is God Himself. And where he's going to go with the next 10, 11 verses is these covenants often started with the, the overlord, in this case, God Almighty, sharing what he brings to the table, what he's done. This is the foundation for the covenant. It's not what you and I have done. It's what God has done. And the same is true today in our lives, in our commitment to God. It's not about you and I, and if we have enough strength, It's about who God is and what He's done in our lives. And so the first point you see there of building God-choosing families, don't stop remembering God. Don't stop remembering God. If God saw fit before asking His people to commit to Him, to reveal who He was and to help them remember what He's done, the same is true in our lives. So we're going to go through these these verses 2-13. through And see what, what we mean by that. What did it mean to remember God? And, and several things that God brings up. And look, this is God speaking. Continuing on in verse 2. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. That should make us take note right there. Because what that means is Abraham, before he was a man of faith, before he was used by God, he was a sinning idol worshiper. We don't think of him that way, right? We think of Abraham as this big hero of the faith. He and his family, his dad and his dad's brothers, they were sinning idol worshipers. They were pagans. And out of that, what does it say? Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And what we see here is God starting at the beginning and He's starting with salvation. And He's saying, Abraham, your father that you revere, he was an idol worshiper, but I saved him. I chose him. I grabbed his heart and he followed me. And those two verses, I think the first part of remembering, I see there is to celebrate God's salvation. Celebrate God's salvation. This is God's amazing grace that Abraham was plucked out of that idol worship, was met by God, and God pursued him. And I praise God that God pursues every one of us. That God pursued me. That He took me out of sin and He took me out of darkness and brought me into His light. And this is an important place to start because what God is doing here is He's setting up the relationship that the commitment or the covenant is founded on. He's setting up that He has brought His people unto Himself and this is His people. And it is amazing. And it is fantastic. I think of Paul as we read through the New Testament and Paul's writings. Whenever Paul starts to talk about salvation, you know what he does? Uh, have you ever noticed what he does in his writings? He like breaks out into praise or song or doxology and talks about how great God is. That's whenever he thinks salvation, he just is amazed by it. In Galatians 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And He keeps coming back to God's grace and this love and this gift of God of salvation, the sacrifice. You see that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and over and over. And Paul's practicing what God said to the children of Israel. Celebrate my salvation. Celebrate God's salvation. In your notes, and highlighted in yellow, I've put some action steps. And, and just sort of thinking through, okay, how do we apply some of these points in our homes? How do we give dads some tools to say, okay, what can I do this week? The first action step, if we put this into practice, talk about salvation in your home. Talk about it a lot. Don't just assume that your family knows how you were saved. Don't just assume that they know you love God and appreciate His work of salvation. Talk about it. How many of us have shared our testimonies with our children? They need to hear your stories. Because this is part of remembering God and what He's done. And remembering God is something that we've seen throughout Joshua, haven't we? Every time those rocks come up, and and that's been eight eight to nine times now where they've built rocks to remember God or, or something out of rock. Tell your kids about your salvation. What it means to you. Praise God that He saved you. It's okay to say, you know, I was a sinner. And I praise God that He took me out of that and and adopted me as His son or as His daughter. And they need to hear that. Now, funny things might happen with that. I can remember when my kids first started praying, each of them, um, some of their first prayers were something like, thank you, God, for saving me after they had, had come to understand the cross and redemption. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Um, I pray for those that don't know you because they're going to hell. And, and, and I think, oh, don't pray that in front of people. Uh, just and, and, and thank you, God, for saving me out of that. And it was a reminder that they're listening. That they're listening to us talk about salvation. Don't get tired of how God started the story. Enjoy it. How many times do we love to hear how couples meet? You know, when, when we've gotten together in community groups, that's often a question that comes up. Well, how did you guys meet? How did you guys get together? Why? Because it's like it brings back all the memories. It's like, oh, that's, that's wonderful. Well, how did you meet God? Enjoy the story. Make sure your family knows the story. We read on in verses 4-13, through 13, the rest of this section of the, the covenant where God is, is sharing His work. And the, the point number B there is to gratefully remember God's faithful work in your life. Gratefully remember God's faithful work in your life. And here in these verses, God just goes through the history in a brief form of Israel. It says, this is how I work. This is how I work. In verse 4, And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. 
They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. That's all the people that was mentioned at the beginning of Joshua that God promised to give into their hand. He's saying, I did this. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Do you see what God's doing here? This is your history. I've been part of your history. I have been faithful to you. And He's showing His faithfulness, His love. Some of the aspects you see there, and as we look for God's work in our lives, we see God's protection, especially from like Balaam who was going to curse them and God intervened and protected them. We see God's deliverance with the Egyptians and the Amorites. We see God's guidance. The word I brought is there multiple times. I brought, I brought, I brought. And so in our lives, do we recognize God's protection? Do we recognize when His deliverance, when He intervenes? Do we recognize His guidance? And these are just some of the major times that God showed His faithfulness to the children of Israel. I have been faithful to you. And God is setting up the foundation for the commitment. He doesn't just say, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He starts with a foundation of His character which never changes. God has always been faithful. He is faithful. And He always will be faithful. That's making a case for commitment to Him, isn't it? Especially compared to all other gods, all other idols, none of which are faithful. If we're to build families that are God-choosing families, if we want our the rest of the members of our family to choose God, don't forget the foundation. So many times, especially as, as, as a father, I can be results-oriented. This is what I want. My, I want my kids to commit to Christ. I want them to serve Christ. So they just need to do it. Yeah. It's a process. And if I don't share with them the foundation that God Himself shared with Israel before asking for a commitment, then I am failing my family. And so dads, moms, I challenge you to do what we've already challenged you in the book of Joshua. Find ways to remember what God has done in your homes. Gratefully remember God's faithful work in your lives. You know, I don't know if you took rocks, but I pray you did and did something with those rocks. Maybe write something God has done. But your kids need to hear that. What you're also doing is you're training your children to look for God's hand in life as you share your stories. It's easy to go through life and and forget completely that God's part of it. But your job as parents is to train your children to start to look for God's hand. That we don't miss what He's doing. And you do that by every day saying, this is how I saw God work. Or celebrating those times and remembering those times by telling your stories. 
I'd like you to just take a moment. And today's a little more interactive. We're going to do some things like the children of Israel did. And in your notes, in that space under, under this, I'd like you to write one thing that God has done in your life. And we've already talked about salvation, so don't include salvation. We've already assumed that. Since salvation, what is one thing God has done in your life? This morning is a morning to put into practice what we're talking about. Okay, that's about a minute. You can keep going later. And I encourage you to have, have a list of these things that you keep in your computer or on rocks at home or some way to remember it. But just three people, share with me what you wrote. You're like, I didn't think you'd do that. Great. He led me to my wife. Okay. Led you to your wife. And so you saw God's hand in that. Good. John. Gave purposeful wife purposeful life for eternity not just here but for all eternity fantastic love my family. you what love my family. he gave you love of your family and your family that that has loved you and and been part of your life in so many great ways there's so many more things we can write but see god's hand especially in difficult times as my list includes most of the difficult times and most of the, the sorrow in our life that I saw God's hand helping us through. Those are stories to tell. So the action step for this is to talk about what God has done in memorable ways if possible. Find ways to pass on those stories. I think even, even two days ago, um, Matt and Sarah Delatore, we have um, Tim and Terry back, back there, their daughter, um, they just finalized the adoption of little Brandon. And what an incredible thing. And what, what's been so neat about it is Sarah, through the whole journey, has blogged and kept bringing things back to God's hand in this, what God is doing. And so as, we, as she shared the story of the end, it helped my perception of God or my faith in God. It helped me think of the things God was doing in my life. And that's what happens when we share our stories. It's contagious and we start to really see the power of God. And that's foundational for a commitment to God. Point number C there, or letter C, under remembering God and constantly remembering God, is to humbly see and rely on God's faithful strength. To humbly see and rely on God's faithful strength. And we may not think of this as remembering God, but as you share your stories of what God has done, Share that you needed God to do that, that you couldn't have done that on your own. Think of even just verses 11 through 13, although it's through the whole passage. What is the theme? Who is the hero of these verses? God is the hero. I did this. I did this. I did this. And then in 11 through 13, just to make sure the point comes home to them in verse 12, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. Just in case they didn't get it, he says, you didn't do it. Doesn't mean they didn't actually use their swords or bows because we know that they did fight, but he's saying that God provided the victory. He provided the power. All kinds of discussion of what the hornet is there. Some have said maybe it's the Egyptian army, but there's no record of that in Joshua or in history. Some have said maybe they actually had little containers of actual hornets and let them go on the enemy before they, they fought. Probably, though, it's referring to the fear and the trembling that came before the mighty hand of God that we saw Rahab talk about, that we saw throughout Joshua. 
It's a reference to that God did the fighting for them. And He sent the hornet. He sent the victory before them. Everything they possessed was given to them by God. In verse 13, you have land you didn't labor for, orchards you didn't plant. And it's all about relying on God. When I think of an action step for this, I think we need to show our family that we need God. Especially dads, let me talk to you. We need to let our kids know and our wives know that we are dependent on God. And that's hard. We don't like to be dependent on anyone. It's why we don't ask for directions. One of the ways you show this to your family, beyond just your words, is to pray often. To pray often. This is a simple step that will help your family see your dependence on God and that you are acknowledging that He is the one that does the work. You're acknowledging a need for Him. And this, this may seem like a subtle point out of the text, but this is so essential, especially in our commitment to God, to recognize our need for Him, our, our dependency on Him. Self-sufficiency kills faith. Because we don't need God anymore. That was the problem with the church at Laodicea. Our kids need to see that. Moms and dads, it's tempting when you have kids to just sort of give them what they want or, or to find ways around some of the needs that you have and to not acknowledge those needs. It's okay for your kids to not have. It's okay to say, I don't know if we're going to be able to do that. We need to pray about it. We need to trust God. In fact, it's essential for them to develop their faith and their trust in God. Do things God's way. Trust in Him to accomplish the results. Humbly see and rely on God's faithful strength. So these first 13 verses are really the first section of the covenant. And it's all about the hero. It's all about what God has done. Before He even gets to the commitment, it's remember me. Remember God. And so, just have some fun. I put a couple hashtags up here. Yes, I do know what hashtags are. And if you know what they are, then this is for you. Your challenge this week is to use these hashtags. This week, to remember God, to post something. For those of you on Twitter and Facebook, a hashtag is a way of sort of indexing and, and, and we can see what God has done. But this week, post something that God has done. Maybe every day, post something that God has done, add the hashtag, remember God. Okay? And then what you can do is you can actually search on hashtags, and so then throughout the week, any of us can search on hashtag on Facebook or Twitter, for instance, and we can see all the ways that God is working in our congregation. It's a way of, of just remembering God together. You can also add the hashtag, serve God, but that's the second half of the covenant that we're getting to. Um, so just, just a fun way of putting this into practice it's also a way of, of remembering God in front of people that may need God. Because your, your posts, I know you may have friends that don't know God. And that's okay to say, this is how I saw God work today, and end it with remember God. And just see what happens this week. Encourage each other in this way. So that's just sort of a fun thing that I'd love for us to do. Challenge. If you don't know what a hashtag is or aren't on Facebook, don't worry about it. That's okay. Um, but for some of our people that live by those, 
It's a great way to use that for the glory of God instead of other reasons. We move on now to the second half of the covenant and our other, other four points in your notes. And, and we come to the part of our response to that faithful God. So we read in verses 14 and 15, and point number two in your notes is serve God alone, leaving no room for idols. Serve God alone, leaving no words for idols. No room for idols. Verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away that the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I get goosebumps when I read those verses. This is Joshua who has proved himself a faithful servant of a faithful God. And he comes to the end of his life and this is his heart for his people. Get rid of idols and serve God. Be committed to Him alone. And this is the heart of this chapter. The heart of the message. This is the commitment. And you see right from the start, now therefore, and Joshua is referring back to these 13 verses of God's faithfulness. He says, now therefore, and he gives them two things. Fear and serve God. Those are are really one thing together. Fear and serve. It's a reverence and a response of service being sold out for God. And these two things describe faithful worship. In fact, we don't worship without both. You can serve God, but if you don't reverence Him, you're not worshiping Him. You're just doing stuff for God. And it turns into this legalistic way that is devoid of relationship. And that's not Christianity. But we could also reverence God without serving Him. Although I would argue then you're not really reverencing God. But if, if there's no actions, if we're not serving Him with our life, then that's not worship either. You need both of these. And so Joshua is describing a life of worship to God. So the first thing is to fear and to serve in sincerity and faithfulness with your whole being, with every part of you. The word for sincerity can be translated integrity. That every part is wholly serving God. But then the so fear and serve, worship. And then the second thing he says is put away the gods your fathers served. Put away the gods. Now, just, just understanding the passage, if he's saying put away the gods, what does that imply? I'm going to assume you said that they were still serving some of the gods. I, I heard all kinds of things, but it was all... They're still struggling with this. They are still already, and and this is why we, we see these clues that Israel is already struggling with commitment. This is why it's on Joshua's heart. And he's saying you need to renounce your loyalty to these things, to serve one God. And in the the Hittite treaty that this is patterned after between an overlord and a a slave, that was part of the treaty is you are committing to serve only this master. And so here, they would have understood this. We are committing to serving only God. Period. Nothing else stands in the way. Boy, do we need to hear that today. And that still needs to be our commitment today. To serve God alone, leaving no room for idols. You think of the Ten Commandments. 
And as God starts those, He talks about, I am the Lord your God. And he, he shares with them again, even in the Ten Commandments, I brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. He reminds them of what he's done. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. I am faithful. This is what I've done. Serve me alone. And that's the pattern we see over and over and over. Warren Wiersbe says, to serve God means to fear him, to obey him, and worship only him. It means to love Him and fix your heart upon Him, obeying Him because you want to and not because you have to. What a description of serving God. Not because I have to, but because I want to, because He has shown His faithful love. He has shown Himself to me. And what else can my response be? And Joshua, with a sense of urgency, says, This day, choose who you will serve whether it's the God your father served beyond the river, referencing Abraham and his father beyond the Euphrates, whether it's the God that the Amorites serve that are in your land now. And then Joshua leads by example, and he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the point is, you have to choose sides. You cannot serve God and serve idols. Augustine says, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all of my life, then he is not really Lord at all. And that is so true, because Joshua here is saying, which God will you serve? It's one or the other. There is no middle ground. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 6.24 when he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And that applies to any other master. And so the heart of this covenant, its foundation is the work of God. And the heart of it is, you have to choose which God you're going to serve because you are making a choice. And I love Joshua saying, I don't care what anyone else thinks. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he leads by example. And I challenge you as parents to lead by example. To say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, a question that, that steps on my toes, and I hope it steps on your toes. If you were to ask your children, what is the most important thing in your life? How would they answer? And if it's anything other than serving God, there's problems. And that convicts me. Because I don't know that my kids every day would answer that. I pray they would. But would there be some days that they would say, well, I don't know, the Dodgers are pretty important to you. Would there be some days that they would say, I don't know, mommy might be more, the most important thing in your life. Now, is it good to love mommy? Yes. Is it good that she's important in my life? Yes. Should she be the most important in my life? Absolutely not. Nothing can stand before God. John in 1 John 5.21 says, My little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a short little verse that is powerful in, in its impact. And an idol is anything in our lives, anything that is more important than worship and service to God. If there's anything that we value more than serving God and worshiping God, it is an idol and it must be sought out and destroyed. 
or we're not serving God. And so I spend some time here because we, we say this verse all the time, right? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But do you know what we're saying when we say we will serve the Lord? We're saying we will stamp out all other idols. Nothing will be more important than bringing glory to God and serving Him. That's challenging. You know, think about what do we spend most of our time talking about. That's insight into what's important to us. What do we spend our time on? That's insight into what's important to us. I challenge you to stamp out idols. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's money. If I just had this. If I could just do this. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's education or intellect. Maybe it's control. Maybe approval. Career. The family can be an idol. All of those things we sum up by saying, I want what I want. And I will choose what gives me the best possibility of getting what I want. That's the world's attitude, isn't it? I want what I want, and I'll choose whatever God gives me the best chance at that. And we have to be careful not to fall into that same mold. This week, go to God in prayer about this. And I challenge you to pray the hard prayer of saying, God, if there is anything more important to me than you, break it down. And that could be one of the scariest prayers you pray this week. But that's what Joshua is coming to the people at the end of Joshua and saying, who will you serve? It's time to choose. It's time to pick sides. A couple of action steps on this one. I couldn't just do one. The first, regularly evaluate what's important to your family. No idols. Idols can creep in so subtly. Things can become important to us and can consume our time so easily. But regularly sit and evaluate. If, if you're married, husband and wife do this together. If you have older kids, I encourage you to include them, and to say, okay, what's important to our family? What are our actions showing is important to us? Be committed to no idols. And then secondly, the serve God part of it. Ask yourself every day, how are we going to serve God today? How are we going to serve God? And then act on it. But it's just a simple way. These are just action steps, not necessarily the points, but ways to try to do this. And one of the ways for us is we often say, okay, how does this help us serve God? How does this bring glory to God? How does this help the kingdom? And we're training our minds to think kingdom-oriented and to serve God above all else. And, and we're, we're, we're starting to do this with our kids. And sometimes they look at us like, huh? Huh? I asked, I asked one of my boys yesterday, okay, how can you use that Nerf gun for the kingdom? It's like, yeah, yeah, that, he had no answer. And so we just talked about the principle a little bit. I know they're young, and they may not fully understand it yet, but I want them to start hearing it now. How are we going to serve God today? Ask it at breakfast as a family and see what happens. Simple things you can try to start to orient our lives around the kingdom. Then we move, and we'll move quickly through the rest of the chapter. That's the heart and soul right there. 
But point number three, make a firm, visible decision to serve God as a family. Make a firm, visible decision to serve God as a family. This is declaring where you stand, declaring what your family is about. Verses 16 through 18. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples and the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also, following Joshua's example, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. And it was a public, visible statement, a line in the sand to say, this is what we're about. They rose to Joshua's challenge. They followed his example and publicly stated their choice to follow God. I love how they even brought back in the first part of the covenant and they brought back in God's work. That's the foundation. Because God is faithful, I commit to Him faithfully. This is a chance for them to re-covenant with God, to recommit with God. This is the third time in Joshua alone that we've seen them committing to God in this way. In chapter 1, we saw the challenge to follow God. In chapter 8, at Ebal and Gerizim, we saw a recovenant, a, a, a commitment to God. And now here at the end, I think that's a good principle that we need to regularly, regularly review our commitment to God and renew that. This is part of what communion's about. And a little bit, we'll end our service with communion today a little bit later. But it's about renewing our commitment to God, reminding ourselves about that. But they made a public commitment. Jonathan Edwards wrote this, Resolved that all men should live for the glory of God. Resolved second, that whether others do or not, I will. That's a quote to put on a wall. That all things are to be for the glory of God, whether or not someone else appreciates that. This firm decision, this answers the question in your families. You need to answer the question, what do we stand for? Because if you as parents don't define that, the world will. The world will be happy to answer that question for your kids. But you as parents, what do we as a family stand for? It's not enough to just think about the answer. Somehow I would challenge you to visibly make sure that your your family knows it. Maybe it's a, a vision statement on the wall. Some of you have those. Maybe it's something else that says, this is what our family is about. But don't let that happen by accident. So that action point is make sure your family knows what your family stands for, visibly if possible. We move on to Joshua's response, which is just sobering. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then He will turn and do not, and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, no, we will serve the Lord. And it's interesting because the point here is to recognize the consequences for not serving God. Recognize the consequences for not serving God. And in every commitment of the time and in this commitment, part of the commitment was the consequences, was the penalties for if you failed your commitment. 
And Joshua here, maybe sensing that they were taking it a little too lightly, maybe sensing that they were just a little too quick to say, yeah, we'll serve God. He says, no, He is a holy God. If you turn from Him, He will judge you. He will wreak havoc on you. Because He is holy and jealous. He has the right alone to be worshipped. And He will not give His glory to another. I think so many times we're afraid to talk about the consequences. We can say you should serve God because you know, God will be with you and in He will. But we forget to say if you don't serve God, if you follow other gods, judgment will come. Because God is holy, He is faithful, He alone is holy, and so to not follow Him has consequences. Don't sugarcoat God to your family. God isn't Santa Claus. He's not the tooth fairy. He's the creator of the universe that demands worship, that is worthy of worship. And our kids need to know that. And let me ask you, do you ever teach your kids not to touch a hot stove? What do you say? If you touch that, you'll burn your little hand. Do we teach them not to just walk across the street that has cars coming? Yeah, we teach them that ahead of time. And I've told my kids, if you do that, you will get hit. You will die. Not trying to be crude, but we we share penalties of other things in life as part of teaching, why don't we with following God? And I think we're afraid of giving this view that God is this mean man just waiting to punish us. But if we do that in conjunction with His grace and mercy and saving love on the cross, that's the balance. But our families have to know that this is a holy God and this is serious business of a commitment to God. We don't keep commitments we take lightly. And if we present following God as a light commitment, Don't expect your kids to keep it. I'll get off my soapbox. Point number five, last point. Embrace a community of God-serving families. 22 through 28. Oh, but the, the action step for the last one, teach your family why our holy God must judge sin. But embrace a community of God-serving families. Verse 22. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Then put away the foreign gods, then do it, that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Seek God. That incline your heart is a beautiful picture of coming after God, of pursuing Him. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. But verse 22 there, Joshua, he he uses tenses there that are in the plural, implying that they are witnesses to each other. That they are community that is to hold each other accountable, that is to encourage each other to follow these things. This is the witness portion of every covenant of the time. He says, you're witnesses to each other. 
And as I think about that, and, and, and you can read through some of the, the rest of that where he writes it on a stone and he sets another stone. He sets the stone up so they would um, witness that under the terebinth tree, quite possibly the same one that Jacob had buried idols under. We are a family of families that have a responsibility to each other. There is an interdependence in the body of Christ. We're to put away foreign gods, but we're to do it together. And over the years of ministry, one of the things that I've seen draw families away from a commitment to God is when their their closest friends and their best associations are people that are not desiring to serve God, that are not sold out to God. It is so important that we have a community of like-minded people sold out to serve God. It's important to our commitment to Him. So the action step there is to spend intentional time with others who are sold out to serve God. Encourage each other. At the conclusion, at verse 30, or 29 rather, verse 29, we see the conclusion to the book, a postscript. And I want to at least highlight the the items about Joshua, the servant of the Lord who stepped out in faith for the faithful one. After these things, Joshua the son of Nun the servant of the Lord died being 110 years old. And this is the first time in the whole book that Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. At the end of his life, after he proved his faithfulness, after he proved his desire to serve God above all else, God gives him the title servant of the Lord. Wow. And that's our challenge. Are we going to live lives that God will call us servants of the Lord? Joshua did. They buried him in his own inheritance in Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Not only did they serve God through the life of Joshua, they served God through the leaders that Joshua trained. I'd like to end the book of Joshua with that same call to commitment. Choose this day whom you will serve. We've studied what God has done. We've talked about what God has done in our lives. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Even if no one else here does, we will serve the Lord. Lord God, I pray that as we come to a time of decision right now, that you would challenge every family here, every individual here, with what it means to follow you, what it means to serve you. Lord, I pray that if anyone comes up and puts their name or their picture on here, that this would signify that they are choosing as their family to follow you and to serve you and taking that seriously. Lord, I pray that we are a church body, a family of families that are sold out to you, that are on fire for you, that are excited for you because we're following your lead and following the faithful one. Thank you, God, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.